I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Today is a, a rough day, Garrett. Um, yesterday, I lost a, a friend of 13 years, a man who had 51 years of uh, a, a 51 year career in broadcasting all of it in classical music. Um, Bob Christensen got sick over the summer with, uh, he had had a cancer diagnosis. It was really aggressive. And yesterday he, uh, he passed away at about five o'clock in the afternoon. And so um, today we want to give some shout outs to Bob Christensen, give him some, some props. Um, you arrived after Bob Christensen retired because I moved into his spot when he retired and you moved into mine after I moved off the overnights. And, um, for me, I, I'm, I, am i am interested to hear what you know of Bob Christensen. For me, uh, there were so many nights where, uh, I would relieve him at midnight and he would stay until one or one thirty in the morning, listening to me talk about uh, the, whatever I was facing, the loneliness, the, um, you know, um, vitriol over something at work or at home or something like that. And he was always in my corner, always had my back. And uh, I, I just think it's such a robbery that he only got like a year and a half of retirement before this uh, cancer took him. How did you know, Bob? Did, you said that you did have some interaction with him, right? Yeah, so... You know, I'm thinking back to the very first day of work for me. So, I, you know, I walk in, into the building and Elena, shout out to her, she uh, takes me to my cube and she removes this nameplate that says Bob Christensen, puts it in the in the top uh, overhead thing and then uh, puts, you know, the nameplate that says Garrett McQueen there. And uh, and that nameplate just, you know, kind of lived lived up there. And then, you know, months later, uh Probably, I guess it would have to have been over a year later, um, early, earlier this summer, um, I get to work, you know, probably about, I don't know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and um, Bob's good friend Bill Morlock, you know, special shout out to him as well, uh, was subbing for someone uh, on the air, and Bob was just kind of hanging out, and Bob sees me walk to my desk, uh, his former cube, <laughs> and... Uh, he walks up to me and says, "Hey, uh, we we hey Garrett, we've never met, but uh, my name is Bob Christensen." And I was like, "Oh, uh, yeah, great to meet you." And he uh, he told me, "You know, I I don't know what you and Scott talk about on that Triloquy prop podcast, but I really enjoy hearing it. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's really great to hear, and it's really fun to hear." And I was like, "You know, if I can just speak, you know, my honest truth, I was like, oh well, here's this you know old white man that I don't know listening to Triloquy. That's that's really exciting, um, and and he loves it." Um, and then, you know, not long after that uh, is when um, you learned about his cancer diagnosis and you're having dealt with that type of cancer before, you know, you oh, kind of yeah. knew that it wasn't a long, it wasn't going to be a long time. So what happened was, it, Bob was diabetic and, he, you know, some people with diabetes have uh, problems with neuropathy in their extremities and he had some of that with his feet. He took a tumble that uh, caused him to get a cut or you know like his toenail got pulled back or something and that's how they found the cancer diagnosis because he went in for an infection and then it comes back. You know Bill Morlock gave me a call while I was on the air in July and he said, yeah, Bob's in the hospital. He got this cancer diagnosis. It's here, it's there and the liver. And as soon as he said that, I said, Bill, I hate to say this, but this is it. That's what got my mom, you know, and, and it's about three months from the time it's diagnosed to the end. And that was in July. Here we are in November. And so that adds up, you know, um, Bill was Bill is St. Bill Morlock, you know, I mean. How, how, for, and for folks who don't know, how about we kind of uh, uh, lay out the professional relationship between Bob and Bill that, you know, kind of fueled their friendship over th the years. Thanks for that reminder, Garrett. My, my thoughts are all over the place today. I'm having a really hard time organizing and just kind of keeping everything together. Um, Bill Morlock and Bob Christensen met each other in Pullman, Washington when they were working at a station there, and they had a show called Bob and Bill. And it was 
uh, of such a huge hit. And, and, you know, even the older set, the people that were older than them said that their radio show was like two young punk teenagers smoking cigarettes behind the concert hall, mm. you know, and making comments about what they heard. And they were both brought here to American public media to do that show uh, together. And uh, after 10 or 15 years, I forget how long it was, they ended up splitting and Bill went to classical NPR and Bob stayed on classical 24. And um, they were just inseparable, a Mutt and Jeff couple, you know, here's Bill at 6'3", and Bob is, you know, 5'10", or whatever it is, and um, they they started to create a sound, and they started to um, question the way that we present this music that I think has kicked the door in to allow people like you and I to even take it another step further. Um, just to give you a sample of Bob's affect on the air, I want to play a little part of his last broadcast here where he talks about the piece of music that was his introduction to classical music. I'm Bob Christensen. Glad to have your company for this hour of music. His name was Mr. Jaffe. I never knew his first name. Mr. Jaffe was my seventh grade teacher. One day, he brought several LPs and a phonograph into the classroom because he wanted to introduce us to classical music. The first disc he put on was this, In the Steps of Central Asia, by Alexander Borodin. I remember the other records as well, some classical and some not, but this piece was my very first exposure to classical music. Mr. Jaffe was not an old man, but he was not a well man. He took a sudden leave of absence midway through the year and shortly after he passed away. I will always be grateful to him for this. That comment from Bob and a little bit of the steps of Central Asia by Alexander Borodin. Um, here's another excerpt, Garrett, where uh, this is sort of fitting. He talks about the Farewell Symphony by Joseph Haydn, how they were trying to send a, a message, you know, to <laughs> the Prince Esterhazy. Hey, we're ready to go home. You probably know the story of the Farewell Symphony by Franz Josef Haydn, where he had the musicians leave the stage two by two to make sure their boss knew they needed a vacation. Since I'm leaving tonight, it's kind of appropriate to play a movement from it. This brings up something very important for me, Garrett, because we look at death very differently. Um, I, I get overwhelmed with emotion, and it's difficult for me to keep from breaking down. And you talk about like when your friends and families were passing away, that it was like, ooh, they're, they get, they, they're going home. They're, they're done with this life. Talk a little bit about that, would you? Yeah, I mean, just... You know, in my tradition, you know, if you watch any home video from, uh, you know, the after party of any funeral, it's full of laughs. It's full of uh, just joyous times and memories. You know, Scott, something I'm thinking about, you know, I, I know when uh, you got the news that he was going into hospice care, I was hanging out with you in the studio and um, a piece by Maurice Ravel happened to be playing Le Tombeau de Couperin. Mm. And in the in the outro, um, you know, you talked about how some people, uh, you know, may have thought it was inappropriate for Ravel to write a happy-sounding piece of music about someone gone that he really revered. Um, but sometimes it's it's those happy times that it's important to remember. And, you know, when I go one day, I want people to... <laughs> I want people to say my name and smile and to say my name and laugh. 
say my name and roll your eyes, whatever. Do not cry for me because I am somewhere better. I'm somewhere where I'm resting. I'm somewhere where I don't have to feel anything anymore, you know. Um, And that's how I try to approach death. But I have to say, you know, know, despite the fact that I didn't have a personal relationship with him, you know, you played those breaks and I hear his voice and it's, it's, it's hauntingly familiar to me. You know, I just think about, I don't know, you know, being 19 years old and, uh, you know, after being a scallywag, I got on the streets heading home and deciding to turn on the classical station. And that's the voice, you know, I hear or, uh, you know, just the, the many sleepless nights of writing those papers or, or whatever, you know, you, you, so anyway, I get misty and I get emotional because I think about the gravity of a job like this. You know, you have no idea how many lives you can touch and how many lives you can impact just with your voice, you know. Um, and yeah, hear, hearing, hearing, you know, from those breaks from Bob Christensen and then the one interaction we had to mm-hmm. where, you know, he's really, you know, celebrating the new guy's accomplishments. What a... What 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 an honor for me to sit in his cube, for me to occupy the space that uh, he once occupied, and what a responsibility. And something that we talked about earlier was, you know, what if he had one more break? What if he had one more 30-second thing to say to the world? What would he say? What would be the gravity of that moment? That's what I think about every time I spend the extra the extra few minutes producing my uh, 57 second billboard or when I'm getting here you know for my midnight shift at 8:30 to make sure everything I do is perfectly handcrafted because it's a duty it's a responsibility there are so many people who have paved the way for this you know I can't help but to think about the uh, Bob and Bill show you know, as it kind of relates to Triloquy about what we do. You know, you already said how they, you know, busted open the door for, you know, to change things up and to and to make classical music just seem a little bit different in the conversations surrounding it. And and maybe this wouldn't be a thing. Maybe this would not be possible, it's possible if, yeah. if, if they hadn't, you know, introduced that idea uh, to the world. So, um, you know, rest in power to Bob Christensen, a huge shout out to, um, Bill Morlock, who was there by his side, um, until the very end. And, um, and Scott, you know, shout out to you and my deepest condolences, uh, to you because I can only, you know, imagine what it must feel like to lose a dear friend. And you know what, but, but, but before, before I am done with my spiel on this, I just want to say that this is why, you know, I make such a big deal about showing um, gratitude and showing appreciation because, you know, I don't now know what it feels like to, you know, lose a friend that you've been so close to for so long, but I know one day I will. And, um, I'm I'm just I'm I'm appreciative and and grateful um for every moment um that we spend together and I hope that in in whatever way I can I can be a support to you. Um it was really great to have you got you guys over when I got the news. Um Devon said something really good when Devon Gray said something really powerful in in the kitchen there. He said the universe knows what you need and to have all of you there when I got the news was um, so meaningful. So thank you for, for being there when, when I heard. And um, uh, I told Bill, I managed to keep it together long enough to tell Bill that uh, he set such an example for others to follow uh, in this situation um, that I hope that I will be able to pay forward one day the uh, generosity of spirit and the love that he showed. I <clears throat> I hope I'm able to pay that forward someday, and I hope that I'm able to show that strength to someone. 
So um, on today's Opus of Triloquy, we're, <laughs> we're chatting with uh, two uh, music therapists, one who uh, works with children with different abilities uh, in the schools. Uh, her, her name is Lindy Walker, and then also uh, Claire Klein, who, um, you know, in a, in a very, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to I'm not I'm trying not to use the word serendipitous, but just in a very timely way, you know, works in hospice, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, as it applies to music therapy. So let's let's take um, a little bit a little bit of a break, and then uh, and then uh, we'll we'll be back with Lindy and uh, Claire. I think this is a great opportunity to play a little sliver of a piece that Bob suggested for a um, a, a web feature on classicalnpr.org on uh, it was over Valentine's Day we were asking they were we were asked to suggest a romantic song and he picked uh the flower song from uh from Bizet's Carmen so let's listen to a little of that Claire and Lindy, thanks so much for joining us today here on Triloquy. Thank you, Garrett, I, Scott. Thank I, I want you. to uh, I want to quickly shout out uh, Claire, our mutual friends James and Caitlin, who I understand have a bun in the oven right yes. now. So Yay. congratulations to them. Uh, we were at a um, at a uh, dinner game night party uh, over at their uh, house. And uh, Eric Whitaker's name came up, and that you know sparked a conversation. And then uh, we both realized that we were musicians, and yeah. uh, and and we decided to connect. So yeah, it's great to uh, be here and have this conversation with yeah. you on music therapy. Um, so first and foremost, um, music therapy is a field that a lot of people probably don't even know exists. So, but what can you say about the field of music therapy? Yeah, I remember when we were talking, I was just elated that when I said I was a music therapist, that you knew what that oh, yeah. was. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. always happen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, music therapy as a field, I uh, I think I found out about music therapy actually from an NPR story that I heard when I was in high school. Okay. Shout out to public radio. Yeah. <laughs> and. You. I believe it might have been DeForia Lane, who is a wonderful music therapist at University Hospitals in Ohio. And she was talking about her work in medical music therapy. And it just spoke to me this combination of science and art and healing and being with people that felt like that would be the perfect vocation for me, too. Yeah. And I think just the intersection of, I mean, being classically trained, spending all those years growing up in a practice room and just realizing like there's got to be something more to this or like <laughs> I like it and I yeah. like the way it makes me feel, but I also don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. And then, yeah, in college when I was going for performance, then I discovered just taking an intro class and it was like, mind-blowing like oh other people can access music too it's not just us and it's not just people that are good at playing an instrument or someone that takes lessons and it, it's so individual to everybody so so let's do maybe just a quick background on some of this classical training so what <laughs> what are your instruments and and what did you originally plan to do with those skills so I I have played violin since I was three, Suzuki trained, yeah. uh, and I have two sisters. So um, we also grew up, grew up, my dad is a pastor, so we were, you know, you got to play at church and you got to do these things. So we, we all played violin, and then um, in high school, like early high school, they were like, there's no violas in orchestra. You get to play viola. Okay. <laughs> so it was like, but I actually enjoyed it more. And that is my instrument now that and what I went to school for. So brunt of many jokes, but um, I think it also gave me a way to relate to people that also are, you know, kind of in 
pl- want to play instruments that maybe other people don't like or sure. or working with people that don't already have a preconceived notion about violas mm-hmm. is really nice. So <laughs> and that's what I started going to college for was for viola performance and that's when when I discovered it. So mm. but also playing like a variety of instruments um in high school again for like church like I played the drum set even though I and not a percussionist yeah, at all. When I, when I was in grade school, <laughs> I decided that I wanted to play drums. And, you know, I didn't know that they were just going to bring me the snare. <laughs> the one drum. Yeah, no, you're not playing the drums. You're playing the drum. <laughs> you're going yeah. crazy. So I was the metronome for two years. Hey, an, an important job, though. Well, Very if you can keep job. time. Yeah, if only we could get you to turn your metronome on now when you're practicing. But that anyway, Thanks. that's another conversation. <laughs> we'll have that later. That's amazing. Uh, uh, Claire, what about you? Yeah, I I am also a PK, a preacher's kid that grew up um, having the very uh, inclusive audience of the congregation welcoming me and to perform and be in front of them at, during church. But uh, I am a vocalist. I've been singing since the little cherub choir and <laughs> yeah as a two-year-old uh, but i also took piano lessons since kindergarten and i play the french horn um we're a brass family my brother's okay. a tuba player and my other brother is a trombone player so we're kind of a low brass gang in my family <laughs> but i was i came to college uh expecting to be able to keep up all those instruments all at the same time but the yeah the the college uh, setup doesn't really allow for you to master all of them at the same time. Yeah. So I focused on voice more. Yeah, and, and that's a whole conversation there, you know, just about going to school and having this perception of what your life could look like in music and then what happens that you had, you know, that, that you didn't expect. I mean, look at me. I'm sitting here in front of a microphone. Who, who would have ever thought, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just learning and, and getting exposed to those different fields um, within music is just so important. And, of course, music therapy, um, you know, is is also a really important one. I wanna, I'm want i going to quickly shout out Melanie Dodson, uh, who we've had on Triloquy. You know, mm-hmm. she's a music therapist down um in in tennessee and Mm -hmm. and um and works mainly uh i think with uh like really young like newborns and you know her talking about that um and and talking with the two of you has really uh, shined a light on you know not just the existence of music therapy but the different corners that exist within music therapy um so so how about we do that now you know uh how about the two of you talk about what you do specifically in the field definitely Yeah, so um, I started out working with people with dementia, different types of dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy body, frontal temporal dementia. And I my job title was activity director. So I did music therapy groups and worked with people one on one as a music therapist. But I was also leading crafts and training volunteers and taking people on outings and um, all that good stuff. And now I work in hospice, so Mm. with people at the very end of life. And even within hospice, there's a variety of um, people that you connect with. Um, I was sharing with Lindy before that I see some pediatric hospice patients. I Mm. have some patients who have special needs in different ways, Um, people with cancer diagnoses, um, people with dementia, people with MS, lots of different needs and and places that we can meet. So um, I bring my music to them uh, when they're still able to converse and talk and reflect. And the music that I sing brings up stories and memories, and we reflect on those together. Um, I helped one guy who is a harmonica player record a CD to share with his family. Um, nice. It was something that he he really wanted to, to share and um be able to pass on to his kids. Um, And then for people who are at the very end of life, um, actively transitioning is the clinical term that we sometimes use. Uh, I'll play music that matches the, the tempo of their respirations and Mm. I'll, um, I'll improvise with them. And it's, it's uh, even though they're in the bed and they're quietly passing we're still making music together what they're doing reflects how i'm singing or what i'm playing on my guitar and um it's it's definitely a mutual making music making experience even even if i'm the only one that's singing they're they're prompting me to make choices and we're 
we're reflecting together and we're I'm getting information from them that affects my music making. So, um, yeah, it's a really special, sacred space to be in. And it's uh, I had a professor once compare a hospice team to a comet that uh, the patient okay. has this solar system of support and people in their lives. And the the hospice team gets to be this comet that comes really close in orbit around them and then shoots off. <laughs> and Interesting. That's their that's their experience together. But it's a I know a lot of people get uh bummed out about hospice work or hearing about death and dying, but it just it's really life giving actually and it's it's such a an honor to be in those spaces with people and with those families and I really That's, love what I do. Yeah, hospice work being life-giving in, the, in a paradoxical way. Uh, and uh, b- before you say what you're going to say, Scott, uh, I just wanted to say in um, in our pre, uh, pre we sent pre-production emails to each other. In the pre-production email this morning, I almost put a note in there that said, I'm probably going to cry today, so just be ready. <laughs> right. But just in what you're saying, I can just feel the tears coming. Goodness mm. gracious, what important and powerful work um, I, that you do. Yeah, I wanted to ask both of you about that because you said that it's a sacred space spot to be in it's a very special place and i want to know how you two keep from absorbing that emotion and breaking down because i would fall apart if if i were in that space just because of the gravity of the situation That's why I don't work in hospice. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I don't say more about have, that. Yeah, so that's obviously when you're going through college, they talk about all the different fields that you can work in and the populations, and they are pretty much unlimited. I, everyone relates to music. Everyone uses it in their own way to process things. Um, but immediately, I, when I was an intern, I interned at Fraser, which is for kids with disabilities. And I did one like observation at the children's hospital on the oncology floor. The whole, I just cried the whole time. Mm, it was like, okay, right. this is not for me. And I just, I, something about my personality, it's just, I just carry too much of it. And I just know that that is how I process it. And not that I have experienced a ton of death in my life personally. It's just, I knew that that was something that someone else could address and have the, like the, emotional. I heard um, a a colleague that works in hospice and she said when someone passes, she just she makes like an origami or something that she can keep a piece of it, but also like um, move on from it in some way, but still have some way to remember, remember those patients. Yeah, I what's so great about hospice is that we work as a team that this interdisciplinary team comes together. We each have our roles in that. And um, I see the work that the social workers and nurses do and think, oh, I couldn't do what they do. Or, you know, we each have our our different um, places and, and responsibilities that we follow up with with different patients. And for me, I really see my role as bringing a sense of peace to the family and to the patient and uh, moments of joy and laughter mm, yeah. and lightness in this really difficult time for people. Um, so, so celebrating those moments of light that we have is is a big part of it that keeps me going and inspired. Um, hospice also requires a lot of driving. There's a lot of downtime in between patients going mm-hmm. from place to place. So. Um, using those moments in the car as as moments of taking a breath and taking yeah. a break and noticing like the this spaces time, between mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah those um celebrating all the the cranes that i see in the fields that i pass or the beautiful leaves and um yeah i think without that it would be a lot but um i think I think we try to be really conscientious of taking care of ourselves as well. And that's why I sing with the Minnesota Chorale is to make music for me and to have my self-care moments, too. Yeah. Um, that, I'm, sh- I'm sorry. You know, no, that we have our our spots that we intentionally think about us, too, so that we can empty our cups and, and make space for other people when we need to, too. 
Absolutely. Um, that's a great point that it seems like all of the hospice attention is put on the person that's going through that transition. And music therapy goes beyond that. So could you talk about what it does for the other people in the room? You know, the, the people that are uh, waiting for the end with this person. Yeah, I think there are oftentimes when I walk into rooms and family is milling around and they know that they should be there, but not quite sure what to do with themselves or where to put their energy. And so when I can come in and kind of direct that energy in the room and and help bring some direction to people's thoughts and feelings, I think that's really helpful. So um, I might ask them, you know, when what song makes you think of your loved one or what's what's a special song that you might have? And um, or I might sing. Um, so, so the the area that I work in, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm for country music, which was a new Shout repertoire country, yeah. for me. <laughs> um, but I've come to really, really love it and appreciate it. But so we might sing like um, George Strait's Love Without End, Amen, and talk about, you know, what was the role that your dad played and, and what are some lessons that he taught you? And so using the lyrics of the song to prompt some conversation and reflection together and um, using those opportunities to bring the family together around the patient. And I mm. think I think people know they should be there and, and they want to be there, but they don't they don't always know what to do with themselves once they're there. And right. um, sitting vigil with someone can be several hours, several days that they're there. So giving some direction to people and um, helping support that time and give some focus to that time can be really powerful and and offer a space to and permission for people just to release those things that they're holding that anxiety that um worry or that um grief that they're holding just letting them know that yeah I can handle it you can you this is a safe place to let that go and I'm here for you and I've got you and using the music as a container to hold that um, mm. is really powerful. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they have this song to let loose. And then once the song ends, I think it feels like, okay, I let it out now. And now we can move on to the, to the next thing. Yeah. And you, you touched on something, you know, actually one of the first questions I had when I first learned about your, uh, specific, uh, corner of, uh, music therapy, you know, the cultural competency that mm-hmm. has to go with it. So you, you mentioned, you know, country not really being what you're mm-hmm. most versed in, but you're having to, uh, learn more about it. And Lindy, I would love to uh, get your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is, what is the process of really making sure that you're as well versed in as much as possible so that you can serve the people yeah. effectively? I mean, I so I primarily work with kids and um, school age kids with disabilities. And so I never thought that I would have such a variety of music. Granted, I play a lot of wheels on the bus. Yeah. Um, But uh, again, growing up and I grew up in a very Christian fundamentalist church. And so we didn't listen to anything except Christian music. And so that was the biggest challenge for me Mm. then when coming to school and learning things. But I have 16 year old kids that are non-speaking that are obsessed with Bette Midler. And then we'll move on to uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And then we'll go over to... I mean, I hate it with a passion, but the, um, I'm going to take my horse. Old Town Road, Road. Lil Nas X, (laughs) shout out. But it is literally the bane of my existence. But a lot of times it's it's just finding, we always use client preferred music. And so it's just a matter of finding the classroom I just came from before this, elementary school with autism. There's a boy that cries he we couldn't figure out what it was for the longest time but he always says the instrument we're playing and then he says wiggles and obviously the Mm. wiggles are a very popular my toddler Mm. loves it so i literally changed all of the songs today in the moment and made them all wiggle songs so all of the melodies were wiggle songs sat through the whole thing so sometimes it's just finding those weird um are not even weird but it's always the client preferred and you can struggle through some things to get there and then like a lot of times my clients recognize the melody or the um 
chorus of songs, but then the actual verses themselves. So sometimes it's just, you know, we're going to play the chorus of this song a few times or um, it's definitely a learning curve. But it's also a good outlet because there's something about just like practicing a Johnny Cash song that's or or any sort of tune that you also start to relate to it, too, kind of. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a nice uh, outlet just playing, because when you grow up playing, that's how you get your emotional, you know, like connection with it. So sometimes it's nice to play something that's um, that you can just practice yourself, even if it's a country song or and and when you when you're road. at home jamming out to you know this Johnny Cash or whatever you know you're at work this is not yeah. for you right. know <laughs> and and how enriching is that um uh how, how about we uh learn more about um you know the the early childhood side of of music therapy now Lindy you're actually um an employee of the public schools uh, officially or how does that work so i actually own a small business okay. i have a private practice so we have contracts with several school districts so Toneworks officially contracts with the school district, and then as an employee of Toneworks, we go in and provide services that way. So the cool thing about that is that we can really um, – the services that we provide can be delivered in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different settings. So some of the schools that we work in, we see a 45-minute group of with kids, and we work on social skills, passing instruments, imitating, uh, using uh, – speaking words or using a AAC device. Um, so any, and, and for folks that don't know AAC. Oh, augmentative and assistive communication. So okay. sometimes it's an app on an iPad. There are specifically devices that look like an iPad, and it just gives kids a way to um, – you touch the their buttons and these programs, and you can form sentences, and you can – speak that way. So when mm. we when we ask kids, we say, use your voice. We don't say, get your iPad or use your device. We say, use your voice. Wow. So you're giving them another way to communicate. So a lot of things is a answering WH questions, um, any sort of skill that they're working on in a group time outside of our music therapy group. So we use all the same goals that the teachers use. We individualize our pr approach. Um, for that specific kid. So again, giving them the opportunity to speak or to use their device or whatever it may be. So uh, in that regard, we are providing a group uh, social skills class per se. So we're replacing their group time. We also off, uh, provide groups that are uh, programmatic, so they cover teacher prep time. So there are things, uh, DAPE is a familiar term in special education, and it's adapted physical education. So oftentimes they use DAPE as a way to cover teacher prep time. So now we can trade off every other day, and the yeah. kids get music therapy and DAPE. So we can provide it that way. We also provide services one-on-one -on -one through an IEP, which is an individualized education plan. So any child that has um, a diagnosis or a disability that requires them to have special accommodations. Now, there are a couple different things. A 509, there are a lot of different ways that students can qualify to receive services. But in that case, we address these specific goals. We have everything from being in a space for 10 seconds with wow. a kid, working wow. on just ex being in a space with an adult one-on-one -on -one and, and um, to you know, writing songs and using, you have middle schoolers that were working on subjects and verbs and nouns. And so we songwrite and we replace the lyrics in songs. Party in the USA is a huge popular one. I don't yeah. think it will ever go out of style, <laughs> but we replace the words and we, you know, first we come up with a list of words that are subjects, a list of nouns. So we really can, there are so many different um, goals that we can work on, but they are all pretty much centered around building relationships with the students and learning from the students in the class because that's your ultimate goal. Yeah. A, a child in a general education classroom, they're learning from a teacher, but there are so many students in there that they're also learning how to learn from each other. So that's really what we're, our goal is, to help them. And it, it is... I mean, the subject of inclusion is one of my soapboxes that I will try not to get onto. <laughs> oh, we'll but get there. <laughs> this this idea that like uh, you have to provide students an opportunity to be successful. You can't. Inclusion is not just 
sending a para to a general education classroom with a student. Right. It's finding other ways to be inclusive. So maybe pulling a student to the special education classroom for a music therapy group so they can make that connection with that person. And then when they see him in the hallway, they'll be like, hey, Sam or hey, Jody or whatever the name may be. And it just gives them one more connection. So, nice. yeah, it's it's I the programs that the special education programs they they're really great about that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, and the inclusion movement is growing in many different ways. But that's uh, yeah. One, of the things. one thing I want to just name explicitly is that that I think Lindy really pointed to well is that well that there is an inclination just naturally that playing music is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, a music therapist takes that to another level and really looks at evidence-based practices and research and roots what we do with music in um, proven or demonstrated ways that uses the music as a vehicle to meet these non-music goals like socialization or life review or um, relaxation or social skills, all these things. Um, It's well, well, people have been playing music and using music Mm -hmm. to um, communicate and relax and mm-hmm. and um, balance humors or whatever for, mm-hmm. for since ancient times. I think music therapy is really trying to be um, thoughtful and scientific mm-hmm. about our approach and and using um, using studies and research to guide our practices. And a lot of um, what I do is rooted in narrative therapy practices. And I think. I'm assuming that opposite. Yeah. <laughs> for us. Mm-hmm. The fewer words the better. That wow. for processing. Yeah. So like for me, narrative therapy is is about um the relationship between oneself to the story about oneself. So um like the uh, for example, like for me, I've always said like, well, I'm a good student and that story about myself has served me in a lot of ways, but um, that story about myself may also hinder me in some ways. And so um, listening for people's stories, listening for how people relate to their stories. Um, and sometimes that's told through words. Sometimes that's told um, through people's relationships and people's um, way of being in the world. And um, in hospice, like narrative, I focus on people's legacy. How is their story going to continue when they're when they're. Uh, when once they've died, or how did they learn the things that they've learned? So that's that's my rooted, um, my therapeutic uh, approach, I guess. So I'm guessing that you're more cognitive behavioral. Yes, maybe? and, and <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm I, I. It's a newer term. I mean, presuming competence and this idea that just because from the outside someone looks like they don't understand they understand. Mm, You know, I have clients, again, that are non-speaking, but I'll put a computer in front of them and they'll write a story. They'll Mm -hmm. type it out. And so like you focus on the, you know, the legacy and what happens afterwards, I am focused on how do these skills transfer outside of music therapy. So we are working on these skills, but then how can I support um, you? You know, we're if we're working on tempo and we do a marching in an instrument parade, one of a, a huge skill for kids walking in the hallway in a straight line behind other kids. And then at what rate do you walk? We don't run. So then like we're marching in an instrument parade. And so they're working on tempo and marching. Well, then how do we transfer that? So when they're out in the hallway walking to another class, they don't have to sing the song and they don't have to have an instrument in their hand and they don't have to have the motivation of, I want that caterpillar. And if I walk in a straight line for three turns, then I'll get to be at the front of the line with the caterpillar. So for us, it's really how are we taking those skills that we're teaching them when they are super motivated by music or if their way of expressing themselves or if you're singing a song about like we're checking in hey hey what's up how you doing how do you feel and they're playing on a djembe well some kids will be like great every single time Mm -hmm. but if you say like tell me on the drum how you feel. And then yeah. they play it on the drum. And then you can ask a kid next to them, how do you think they were feeling? They mm-hmm. kept it on the inside. There wasn't anything on their face. But how did that sound to you? And I think that's a really great way to help kids. Or You know, like, we're, it's always about transferring. It's mm-hmm. always about how can we 
enhance this child's time outside of music therapy, but still kind of be using some of those yeah, skills. And, and the application of of you know that music, um, you know that's a that's a very important part of this. You know, from where I sit, because you know, and Scott, we've talked about this. One of my struggles when it comes to um, folks at the end of uh, their life, and even when it comes to like you know education concerts, bringing me bringing my bassoon into an elementary school. How you know how do we make that not self serving? How do we make that not about look at me or listen to me, and more about how this applies to you and how you can utilize what you're hearing and what you're experiencing um, in, in a real way. That that's that I think that might be my favorite thing about music therapy as a whole is that there's a real application there. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a good one for you to feel, Lindy, with all your experiences with the sensory-friendly concerts. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of my passions is, again, this idea of inclusion and then the difference between accessibility and accommodations. Because, again, it's one thing to open up a space and say, you're welcome to be here and we'll accommodate you with a fidget or with, like, headphones or uh, whatever it may be that's, like, a standard uh, way to accommodate someone with a sensory sensitivity. But this idea that music therapy isn't for everyone. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing about being a music therapist is to assess someone and it'd be like, no, this isn't it's mm. not this isn't what they need. It's not it's not beneficial for them. But it doesn't mean that they can't relate to music or they can't access it. So giving these opportunities for people in the community to be included, but also have different opportunities and different styles. So one of the opportunities is sensory-friendly concerts in the Target Atrium at Orchestra Hall. So they're smaller. The max number of people that you can really have in the room is 100 people. You're giving an opportunity for families to come together. So if you have that one child that has a disability, it's the split family syndrome where you have one parent that stays home with that child and the rest of them get to go do something in the community. So those are smaller. Kids that have huge sensory issues that can't be in maybe one of the full orchestra relaxed family concerts, it gives them a different opportunity. So you have the equal access to the music, and then we take it one step further by in between each piece that one of the Minnesota Orchestra Chamber groups plays, we give someone an opportunity with a disability to come up. We have phenomenal like crazy good musicians mm-hmm. and the they just come out of the woodwork and it's amazing when you start offering this opportunity and people are like oh inclusion isn't just me getting to go to a concert and watch it's also me being involved and having a platform to advocate for myself and being in front of an appreciative audience so i think it's it's more than just this one on one or this group environment it's just putting the opportunity out there that people can experience the music in in a different way is I think that's the biggest thing. And as music, the field of music therapy grows, I think because we have this ability as music therapists and with our training, we know it's it's this idea that we have this background that it's not just someone playing their cello for a hospice patient. You're watching to see their mm-hmm. breathing and you're building off of that. It's um, a lot of times I go present in high schools about music therapy and it's really fun to start by just saying, what do you think music therapy is? Mm. And then being able, you know, a lot of responses is like, oh, listening to like piano music when you're stressed. Some people are relaxed by heavy metal music. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> you know, like it, it's just. Good for them. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just right. the other day I no. played Sticks and Black Slabbath for one of my hospice patients. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. If that's what they want to hear. That's, that's what they want. That's yeah. what spoke to their soul. Yeah. It's, it's so amazing to hear about how far music therapy has come, especially for somebody who didn't even know that it was happening, that there was this much study and and thought that goes into it. And I think all the way down to like you were talking about your sensory friendly concerts, that's amazing. Um, but you also have to deal with things that we deal with outside of, of all this, like appropriation mm-hmm. and some gender dynamics and things like that. What's that like for you? Yeah, so I I was looking at the American Music Therapy Associations. Um, every year they collect data and um, do some statistical analysis of who who is a music therapist. Um, the most recent I could find uh, easily was from 2015, and we're 87% female and 87% white. Um, 
I, I have something to say about it, too. Please. So yeah, I, I hear the both of you are. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that the there are so many... There are so many reasons that there aren't men in our field and why there aren't um, other cultures represented outside of white women, basically. And it's it, the college degree. If you if you can't afford college or you don't have someone that will co-sign on a loan for you, you're done. There yeah. you go. That's the biggest one right there. And then if you can't find a job that the advocacy is such a big part of our job mm. no matter where you work if you work in a hospital with a a position that's already there you're advocating with the other child life specialists you know like the people that you work with in your interdisciplinary mm. team but mm. if you if you don't it, like if you go get a job um, in somewhere, you're going to have to you're most likely not going to get paid as much as you want mm -hmm. or what you're going to be able to afford to pay off your student loans. There are just so many or if you have to travel for work, having a car, there's just the 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 difference between what it costs to go to school mm -hmm. and the barrier of going to college and then talking about like master's level entry and stuff like that to to make yourself a more like proven or um, recognized field that just adds a whole nother layer of, of, of issue. And it's, it's really frustrating to, I mean, I work with a class of uh, early childhood mental health in North Minneapolis. Those kids don't need to see a white woman come in and play music with them. They need someone that they can relate to. They need someone that they can bond with and can say, like, I know on some level, even if you're not highly mobile, if you have a home, like, that's still, like, something I can think about. It's something that I can, you know, attach myself to. Like, I might not know your specific situation, but you have a job and you have a, you know, like, a, a life in, in some sort of way. And being able to attach themselves to that is, it's, like, heartbreaking. And then also, how do you change it? Because it's been that way. Our field is fairly new, but... That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the and it's hard if you can't find I mean, being a business owner, I have all women employees. And as much as it's like, woohoo, women own business. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. also like what I can't yeah. I can't play this like not Black Sabbath. I don't even know <laughs> classic rock music. But, you know, like sometimes you just need a dude to like come in and like do a few riffs and kind of play Jimi Hendrix and be that person. And it's hard to go in and just have a client be like, why aren't you a guy? Sure. Like, you know, but, I wow. feel the same way. But, but, at, the, but at the same time, you know, oh while we acknowledge those real life barriers, I wonder if there are just sort of uh, the cultural barriers, you know, the idea that, you know, a man shouldn't be a kindergarten teacher. Mm -hmm. Boys don't play the flute. You know, I, I wonder if, if that plays a, oh, yeah. a, a part yeah. in this. Yeah, I I would think so. And I I should say that we are not official spokespeople for the of AMTA. Course. Of course, of course. And I know that um, I know that there are lots of um, motivated, uh, thoughtful people with yes. the American yes. Music Therapy Association who are working and mm -hmm. studying like how can we how can we open this up open our field up to more and more people and um, they're doing really great work and yes. reflection on that. Yes. So I just want to yes. name that too. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, I think there is something to, you know, that I know the, the Minnesota Chorale who I sing with does a specific programming that, is called Men in Music, um, trying to encourage uh, high school boys to to sing, and it's just the guys do that project, and you you really have to see it to be it, I think, and I you know the more the more faces we can get, and I I think there is something to there's a different dynamic that happens between patient or client and therapist with when they have a different face in front of them. I think the I think what's talked about or what's mm -hmm. what what the client feels free to say or not say changes depending on who they're in the room with. Um, so I think, I think it's important not just to check off some, mm -hmm. some boxes of, of who we are, but also I think it will serve our patients better. The, the more choice they have mm -hmm. and, and who is their therapist and who is, yep. who's working with them. And um, I think, I, I know we try to, ground ourselves the research tells us that patient preferred music is the music that works the best often not in every situation mm -hmm. um 
but uh, so we so we're always trying to think from the patient's perspective, and sometimes their music is not our music. But mm-hmm. if that's what speaks to them, that's what we're going to try and use and and bring to them. Um, and again, where that cultural competency comes right. in, yeah, yeah. So so being being willing to being open to other all kinds of music mm-hmm. and different things. Um, I also want to reflect on. You know, so many music therapists use djembes or bongos or... And where do these instruments come from? Or, you yeah, know? yeah, or right? Native American flutes or yeah. gathering drums. And um, I I have an Ojibwe client right now that um, he, because of uh, historical trauma, he's been separated from his culture. So he he wants to be able to connect with his Ojibwe music, but he... Um, you know, he he was not able to engage in that or learn about that. Um, so at end of life, he really wants to connect with who he is and his roots. So trying to find not not only am I trying to um, provide the instruments to him and the music to him, but also connecting him, trying to find resources mm-hmm. of people from his community to connect with that that will be able to. Um, more fully uh, give him the music that mm-hmm. he's he's looking for, and and do that music justice. I think um, so. So trying to pull in community resources as well, and knowing knowing um, you know who who I could ask from the Ojibwe community to come and help um, collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's a lot to that question of yours, Scott. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and beyond the conversation of music therapy, you know, one of the biggest challenges of our time, I think, is the conversation of knowing when to step back, knowing mm-hmm. when you aren't the best person. Right. For Isn't that the, the best skill that needs to be there? Yeah. Right. And, right. And, and it, it's so easy to, you know, point the finger at others, but yep. I think, you know, there are times in which we all have to take the responsibility and have the competency to know that mm-hmm. it's time for us to step back yep. and to, you know, find ways to, to serve folks in a, in a more authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that these are, or I at least hope these are conversations uh, that uh, happen at the music therapy conference that's actually yeah. going on as, as this airs. How, how about y'all t- uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. I Well, there's, um, Lindy was uh, talking about uh, thinking about master's level entry and, and what, what in our training can help mm-hmm. us be more competent and what, what, will help us be the most prepared music therapists for the world. Um, so the AMTA, ha- the AMTA has a commission um, to examine that and reflect mm-hmm. on that together. The 21st century music therapists is their focus is, yeah, right. what does our field look like now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's not 1990 anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So during the conference, there was... <laughs> Every day. So during the conference, there's a lot of meetings from different committees and different um, uh, commissions and, and uh, stuff like that. But there's also opportunities for ongoing education. Mm-hmm. So there's all day learning courses that um, music therapists can take. There's um, shorter um, talks where people can share their most current research and um, have forums for discussion. There are some um, there are some events that are more uh, uh, tabletop conversations. There are more that are uh, more like lectures. So there's lots of different ways of learning and getting together and um, even just those informal times of going out to dinner with your yep. music therapy colleagues and saying, oh, I've been really struggling with this and mm-hmm. what do you do about that? Cool. Um, that that all happens. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the, the, the dinners yeah. and the and the bar meetings and conferences mm-hmm. in general yep. is where the real magic happens. That's yeah. where the work yeah, gets done. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and there's definitely some jam rooms happening too, so okay. people can. Yeah, and I think going back to your point of like just taking a step back, and sometimes it's not your place. That's something that I when I talk about inclusion and accessibility and how we can support people with disabilities is sometimes it's enough to just say, "I see you, I hear you." I support you. End of conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, this is your place. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to take over it. I'm not trying to sh- tell you how you could do this or how it worked with the disability community and so it could help with your culture. It's just what you need. I got you. Like, 
if you want me, if it's as simple as sharing the resource with people that are in my sphere, you know, like the people that I have access to, whatever it may be, a lot of times they respond so well to that. And I think it's, it's just, it's really hard. It's, it's hard because you, you don't want to step into that and then, but you also want to share your experiences. So like at conference, there's like a trauma informed music therapy and, you know, using, um, there's definitely a few on cultural, Mm -hmm. um, cultural approaches and, and working in that. And so I think it is great because the, there are some, and DeForey Lane, you know, like there are some people that have this knowledge firsthand and they can share it with you to mm-hmm. the point that you're at least educated, that you're not going to go in and look stupid or try and take over or that kind of thing. I think AMTA does a really good job of staying up on um, last year. I know there were a lot of LGBTQ presentations mm-hmm. and working with veterans. So they do a really good job feeling out what are the areas that we don't have as much experience in how can we give those people that are in high school you know it's catching kids sooner mm-hmm. and and how do you give someone in high school someone that they can relate to that's going to say like no you got this like it's worth it we'll find your resources we, the more it's known the more funding we get and the more opportunities so i think just getting as much exposure and as much support to and as much respectful opportunities and not taking that space up and saying like this is more important or this this area is more up and coming or we have more evidence on this and so this is really how we're going to get the word out about music therapy Mm -hmm. that's not the only area of music it's just like if you only talked about hospice right or if you only presented on that kind of things sometimes you know this i see you i hear you i support you and then like Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Right, this right. is yours. Or this Scott, is yours. In, in our corner of the world, if we only talked about Haydn or if we only mm-hmm. talked about Beethoven, mm-hmm. you know, it, it all relates in, in such incredible ways. Um, so, so as we uh, wrap up here, you know, there's someone listening right now who has never heard of music therapy, but could benefit or know someone who could benefit from it in some way. So what points, what steps can someone take to exploring the possibility of music therapy in their lives or in the lives of their family? Yeah. Well, there are probably music therapists right where you are. Um, If you go to musictherapy.org, there is a find a therapist tab Mm -hmm. and you can type in your city or your state and a list of music therapists are going to come up for you to find and connect with and talk to you. Most music therapists are more than happy to go on and on and on about their work, <laughs> as you heard today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, take them out to coffee and connect with them. And, and um, yeah, we're, we're always looking to, to spread the good news about music, music therapy. therapy. Yeah. And, and music therapy, as it applies to uh, medical care, is this something that's covered by insurance, um, you know, depending on, you Your know, carrier. who covers you? It, yeah. Yes and no, and um, it's something that we continue to work on. Um, Different states have different processes. Um, Some music therapists in different states are licensed through the state. Um, All of us are board certified, but not all of us are licensed, and it's something that uh, we're working on state by state by state to hey regulation yes to to get passed as a legislation. but uh, there's there's some uh, services that can be billed to insurance with certain paperwork and it's a it's hard. I will say um, because a lot of the kids we work with have speech and OT and therapies that are billed to insurance. Um, one of the biggest ways that our clients access funding is through Medicaid waivers. Okay. So this is on top of you have federal money and state money that comes in, and this is a waiver program. So you have to be qualified for MA, mm. which is Minnesota's uh, distribution of Medicaid. Sure. Um, and so when you when you do that, you have this access to waivers. This covers everything from like if you have a child that can't regulate their body temperature, a waiver will cover that difference in your heat bill of where you have to keep your heat and where a regular family would keep their heat Mm. or any kind of alternative therapy, um, sensory items that you might need in your room. So that is the biggest way, and it's a solid source. And you have the federal 
the federal money that comes in and those those amounts are way bigger. But then you also have county specific and those are really solid solid sources of funding. And again, if you're working with people that don't have, if you're on MA, then you are at a certain income level or your family is at a certain income level. So you really can't afford to private pay. Mm. But so that's a great, I would say 90% of our clients that we see um, for individual services. Okay. And then for folks here uh, in uh, the Twin Cities or in the great state of Minnesota, uh, how can they learn more about you? And, and Lindy, uh, your organization, Toneworks, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned. How can they find more information about that? Well, toneworksmusictherapy.com is our website, but you, we're all over the place. We do stuff with the Autism Society of Minnesota. We have an inclusive arts camp, um, and we do social skills classes. We do stuff with the Down Syndrome Association. We're with the Minnesota Orchestra a lot during the, during the orchestra season um, and then some Summerfest stuff. But ToneWorksMusicTherapy.com is the easiest, but you can find us all over the place. What about you, Claire? How can they find more information about you? Sure. Well, um, I work with uh, Fairview Legacy Health East Hospice, um, so that's where you'll find me. Um, I'm hoping to start a dementia-friendly worship service. I just graduated with my Master's of Divinity. and oh, congratulations. Thank mm-hmm. you. Amen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, and am hoping to be ordained in the next year or two. So uh, more to come on that, though. Still still in process. Yeah. Well, thank, uh, thanks to the both of you for being here. Uh, thank Claire, you so Claire, much. Uh, tell Jacob hello when you I see will. him. I <laughs> will. Yeah. I, I really appreciate your time today. And uh, just recently, I lost somebody that um, used to work here, and uh, th- this is all good information to have. I'll take mm. I'll take all this with me for next time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Claire Klein and Lindy Walker in conversation with Garrett McQueen and myself, Scott Blankenship, here on Triloquy. Something that Lindy Walker said that really resonated with me when she was talking about the technology and how um, you know they they don't say pick up your iPad, uh, use your voice. And that's how they do it. And, you know, music um, as a voice. And um, so so that's what I'm going to name this uh, opus, Use Your Voice. Um, that's also a very important phrase to me. Again, um, you know, as we dedicate this opus of Triloquy to the late Bob Christensen, how he used his voice and how his voice touched so many people, even people who never knew his name, people who, who never knew what he looked like or knew anything about him other than the fact that he was the voice coming through the radio. Using your voice is so important, um, not taking for granted your voice and the opportunities you have. It's something I think about every single day, Scott, when we uh, walk into this studio, every day when I'm um, on the radio air overnight. And um, I hope that you will continue to think about that, you know, how you can use your voice and how you can occupy the space that you're occupying in a way that would have made Bob proud. So once again, a shout out and rest in power uh, to Bob Christensen. So the next opus of Triloquy is um, going to air on the holiday that some of you call Thanksgiving. Uh, so um, in honor of that, we're going to have a conversation of indigenous music, how it applies to classical music, and, uh, and, a, and a bit of drama that shook the classical music world uh, on this topic. Uh, all of that and more next time on Triloquy. <laughs>